So tonight I'm going to start what I hope to be a series. However, as, as teaching team members, we don't get like 10 Wednesdays in a row. It's really how the schedule falls, who can handle what. You know, Pastor Ralph did several weeks on cults. And so, you know, I teach some Sundays, I teach some Wednesdays. So I don't want you to think, oh, series, you know, he, he's got to speak this thing every Wednesday for X amount of weeks. I'm going to teach on this when I, when I teach. And if you don't see me for, for another month, then the next time I teach, you're going to hear more on this. And I believe it's, it's a really powerful, uh, in-depth study, kind of a revelation uh, God has just given to me. And the title of this series is called The Corruption of Divine Purpose. The corruption of divine purpose because God has a divine purpose. I spoke a little bit about it here, about this vision. And, and God has a divine purpose for us. And so the enemy wants to try to corrupt that. He wants to come in subtly and try to distract us and confuse us. So we're going to look at a passage in Proverbs that talks about that corruption, that erosion, all the elements that, would, that he would bring. Tonight we're going to start with the eyes, and I'll get to that in a minute. But we need to understand God has created us all with a divine purpose. Don't ever let uh, that be lost on you. Our destiny is in him. And apart from him, we have no purpose. Just remember that. You might think, you know, your, your to-do list for the day is your purpose, your grocery list, raising your kids or whatever. Apart from him, you have no purpose. Those things all stem out of your purpose in him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think that is one of the most powerful, concise truths about our divine destiny and our divine uh, purpose that was ever written. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That means everything in our life should glorify God. And actually, we should enjoy partnering with him in that process because we're going to do it forever we entered into life eternal and that started when you were born again it's not waiting for when you die it's now and so I always like to look at well if this is what our purpose is this is what God has for us then you can just bet your bottom dollar the enemy has the opposite purpose for you and so the opposite of that divine purpose if the enemy wrote a statement for our lives, might be something like this. Man's chief end is to find glory in himself and pursue his own interests. Isn't that the opposite? Or it might read, man's chief end is to deny the purposes of God and be separated from him forever. Wow, that sounds strong. And most of us as believers would say, I'm not going to do that. Unfortunately, we do end up partnering with that and we want to be aware of how that takes place so that we can avoid that see our hearts are subject to the sin nature because you were born into sin because Adam sinned and if Adam didn't sin and you were the first one you would have sinned too it's in our nature okay and so every day, the fallen nature is waiting to be led in either direction. We're going to go the fallen way, or we're going to go the redemptive way. There's a path, right? In the biggest of ways, in the smallest of ways, 
Daily we have before us the road with that split opportunity to take the road to God's glory. The chief end of, of us is to glorify God and join forever or to self-glory. I'm going to glorify myself. Probably every second you have that opportunity to make that choice. Jesus taught in agricultural terms, but it wasn't just because he was in farming communities. It's because it's an eternal truth of the kingdom of God, and it's something no matter what generation or culture we live in, we understand these things. That things that are fed and nourished will always grow. Do you realize that, right? Things that are fed and nourished will grow, and the things that are deprived of growth environments will struggle to grow. You get that, right? If you don't give something the right ingredients to grow, it's going to struggle to grow, and growth will be hindered. And so, in keeping with that, if there's two elements competing for a growth environment, one of them's going to thrive and one of them's going to starve, right? So the one that has the maximum opportunity for growth is going to grow, and the one that isn't is going to shrink. And these are the, these are the, the competing things, the self-glorification or the God-glorification. And so when God things are growing, we want God things to grow, and conditions are kept so that God things keep growing, then the tricks and traps of the enemy will be hindered from growing. Good God growth keeps out the enemy growth. But when the elements, the enemy prizes and values are growing, then the God things will be hindered and stifled from growing. Is this too simple to understand? You get it, right? You are allowed to say amen. The whole idea is to know what does God want to grow? What does God want and what does God absolutely not want to, to grow? And I don't want to keep you on pins and needles, but we're going to look at a scripture, don't go there yet, that talks about all the things God hates. What he doesn't want to grow. We're going to look at those. So we need to know this so we give the right environment for the God things and eliminate potential for any kind of growth that might be initiated by the enemy. If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap great spiritual rewards. It will glorify God and will advance the kingdom. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap fleshly rewards. Right? If you eat a dozen donuts for breakfast every day, you're going to reap a fleshly reward. You will grow in the flesh. That's, that's pretty simple. And if we feed the flesh, we deny the glory that belongs to God. And then we'll be ineffective as partners in growing and expanding the kingdom of God. So in this series, I'm going to try to unpack a series of elements. We could also say that there are environments and opportunities for growth. It's a list of things the Bible says God hates. How I many you know if that's listed in Scripture, we pay attention? Because it really doesn't say it that often in this way that God hates. And that doesn't mean we're only going to see what is wrong with these things. We're going to look at what God's divine purpose for these things is. That's why it's called, this, the, the series is called the corruption of his divine purpose. 
Because God hates when his plans have been corrupted. God hates when his ways are, are hijacked and stolen by the enemy. We want to see what he intended for these things so that we can bring him glory and we can live out our divine purpose. Don't get tired of hearing that phrase. We also need to become aware how systematically the enemy wants to use those same things that were created to glorify God and he wants to twist them, pervert them, and corrupt them so they become the antithesis of divine purpose. And the reason we were created to glorify God, he didn't create just one person, right? He, he created a fruitful, multiplying generation of people for his, not only for his companionship, to partner with him in his love, but so that we could be co-creators with him in this earth. To represent him. Everything we do should represent him. To build the kingdom. The things we do in the natural should reflect his glory. So what happens when more than one person attempts to do something? You have the potential for division, strife, disunity. See, God lays down the challenge that I want you to partner with me and you're going to do it together because I need all of you in the specific, unique way that I've created you. And together you are one. Are you hearing this? So the antithesis of his glory is going to lead to disunity and strife. So what God created for oneness, for unity, for divine partnership, both with him and with one another, what he created for kingdom collaboration, I love that word collaboration is co-labor. That means we work together on this. It's not I work and you watch. No, it's we work together. We figure out how to work together. My wife and I love competition shows like Survivor and you learn by watching people in an intense social situation where they're deprived of the basic, uh, you know, elements of life and they have to, to get along. You learn who can collaborate, who can build shelter, who can build fire, who can work together as a team and it's not always the people you think are going to succeed that succeed. So collaboration, we're created for kingdom collaboration and that's always under the attack from the enemy. So the enemy's plan is disunity, independence. He wants you to be independent. He wants you to be a lone person off on your own. He wants to divide. He wants to bring division, strife, and discord. And the Bible says God hates these things. And, it, and somebody needs to raise their hand and say, if God hates this, then why is this still going on? See, we have to come clean and take ownership of our part. Why throughout this whole pandemic and all this, this current climate, we know the Lord is coming soon, but there's more and more devouring, biting, disunity, uh, camps, tribes contending against each other, probably then in the history of the body of Christ. God hates that. He hates that. And if we're somehow contributing to that, we've got to go, well, time out, let's stop. So one of the reasons I love the Apostles' Creed series we're teaching 
It is a unifier. It's going to get us all on the same page on unity. So God passionately resists any cooperation with the plan of the enemy. And when we see a lack of blessing, we see a lack of abundance, we see a lack of of increase, we see a lack of fruit, there's always a reason. And it's usually, there's just discord. There's just division and strife. There's no vision. So let's look at our, that our, our main text here that we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. It's from Proverbs chapter 6, starting at verse 16. I'm going to read from 16 through to 19. And says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run to evil, a false witness who declares lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Now, I want to talk a little a bit about Hebrew wisdom literature here because sometimes these things are like, I used to always struggle with these. There's several of these proverbs where they say three things this, the fourth is this, and the math just doesn't add up. You're kind of like, well, I'm not sure what, what they're doing here. It's an intentional, uh, it's an intentional poetic technique to, to show you a picture and to teach you a truth, okay? So Hebrew poetry, what the Holy Spirit used to, to write the wisdom literature is very dense. And by that I mean there's a few words, but it is thick with meaning. And it is interlinked with depth uh, of Scripture. So it's dense, and it's meant to be meditated upon. It isn't meant to be read and and then you walk away and forget it. Or once a day, I'll quickly hit this. It's supposed to draw you into this very deep, oh, I saw this, oh, now I see this, now here's another layer, oh, this connects to this. It's, it's to get you to meditate on the Word of God. It's intentional. It's very dense. Often the Hebrew poets, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would use wordplay. And in the original language, it, the wordplay is a little bit more significant significant because the symbols and what words mean, we lose all that as soon as it goes to English. But I'm going to try to find some of those things here that, that will mean something to us. And there's often numeric symbolism. How many of you were here for when I did the Lamentations message? We, we got a ton of numeric symbolism out of that. If you haven't heard that, go scroll back through the podcast. It's a Wednesday night. It was on, on Lamentations. So uh, this poem... It's one, like many proverbs or psalms or poems, that build sequentially in intensity. It starts in one spot and then it it starts to build and you're getting a little more intense and you're getting a little more intense and then at the end you're like, whoa, that's a heavy, a heavy line there. What is he saying? So some scholars have identified this particular structure as a numeric ladder. You could kind of see it. It's also referred to as a number, number plus one. And that's easy to see because it says uh, six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination. So it's six, then they add one, and you get seven. Make sense? So when literature does this, the number and the number plus one opening statement, that's like the answer key to the whole thing. That's like the code that says, okay, this is what you're looking for. That seventh idea down there is the summary of all that this is about. 
and the previous items are building and reinforcing the conclusion of the final statement. So this text is saying, uh, it describes both a process and a detailed descriptive picture of the type of behavior that results in discord among the brethren. But in the bigger picture, this passage is talking about the corruption of God's divine purpose. That's why I'm teaching on it. Because this isn't just, you could say, well, Pastor James, why are you going to teach for seven weeks on strife? No, it's seven weeks on how the enemy wants to erode God's divine purpose for us. And God's divine purpose releases us to spread the gospel, to worship him, to glorify him, to do everything that we do for him. And it's just amazing that in the final analysis, strife is the one thing that pretty much destroys it all. And so I want you to think about these numbers, six and seven, anyone who's, who's been a student of the word for, for, for very long, can you think of another place in scripture where there's six of a thing and then a seventh thing? Any ideas? Creation. She got it right. Six days creation. The seventh day rest. Now, what I love about Scripture and what I really love about the Old Testament scrolls is that the Holy Spirit puts hyperlinks, and you've got to pay attention. These numbers aren't random. He's pointing us to creation. He's saying, this is decreation. This is decreation. This is how to destroy what God intended to create. Are you following me? So we see this passage is a picture of anti-creation. In six days, God created the earth and called it good. And on the sixth day, the pinnacle of God's divine purpose, as recipients and participants of creation, guess who came along? Us. And what is, what happens when we take the number six and, and say that's, that's the final number? That's the number of man. That's the Antichrist. That's the mark of the beast. Six, six, six. It's all about man. It's all about us. We've taken God out of equation. Until you move over into his de destiny and purpose for you to rule and reign with him forever in rest in seven, the picture is incomplete. And so the enemy wants to destroy that creation process. So this text is a decreation narrative. You could say it's the enemy's plan, right? So instead of seeing, listen, that God is good, as he said in creation, instead of speaking openly and honestly with the Lord before the fall of man, Adam and Eve just talked freely with the Lord. They walked with his spirit, right? Instead of using their hands to tend and care for the earth, to take care of the animals, instead of walking, all these items are lifted. Tongue are, are listed in this passage. Tongue uh, hands, steps, instead about walking about in perfect fellowship with the Father in the cool of the day in the garden, garden, instead of bearing witness to the plan and purpose of the goodness of God and the purpose of God, we see corruption of every one of these divine purposes. So when the Bible says God hates something, it's saying his nature is the opposite of that thing. His nature is the opposite. The pure character and nature of God will be polluted or compromised by these elements. Don't touch them. Don't go near them. Avoid them at all costs. 
It's the corruption of something God created for good. It's being used to oppose his good purpose and intention. See, in the presence of a perfect God, anything contrary to his nature is destroyed. It can't exist. Did you know that? Sin can't exist in the presence of God, the presence of the Father. That's why Jesus had to take the penalty for our sin and take the full wrath of God for us. Now we can be in the presence of the Father only because the sacrifice for our sin was satisfied. Make sense? Jesus does come and take up residence within you, and yes, you still will have a propensity to sin. That's not the same thing as the pure, holy presence of God. Because when we're finally there fully, absolutely no sin can be there. Jesus is there. The lamb slain is there. So, so get this. In the presence of a perfect God, anything contrary to his nature is destroyed. He is a consuming God. In Christ Jesus, the wrath of God was satisfied. So Jesus, the incorruptible one, was corrupted. So our corrupted bodies can be raised to incorruption. So we're warned here not to go back and open the door for what we've been redeemed from. And yes, this is Old Covenant, and yes, this is pre-New Covenant. However, it speaks to the eternal truth that is through both covenants, and it reveals to us something. The Old Covenant always has Jesus and the redemptive plan there. You just have, your eyes have to be open to it. I'm going to talk about that later in this message if we ever get to that tonight. So, of course, our poor behavior, you know, it's not going to change who he is, but it can hinder him from being who he needs to be to fulfill his plan. You absolutely can hinder God's best from coming to pass in your life. We don't want to do that. We don't want to live in the flesh. We don't want to start to empower something that God has already stripped its power of. How many believers do that? Like, oh, precious, you've just been delivered from that. Why, why are you going back there? Why? Dear, sweet, precious brother, sister in the Lord, don't tolerate things. Don't operate in the ways you've been redeemed from and delivered from. Just shut that door forever. Okay, so in this passage, we see that it's kind of the sum of the parts end up equaling a cohesive whole that gets polluted. Parts of the body are corrupted. So when parts of your body is corrupted, your entire body will eventually be polluted. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Jesus said. When any one part of the body of Christ gets corrupted, it's, it can so easily spread to the rest of the body. So corrupt eyes haughty eyes, corrupt hands, corrupt speech. Those three corrupt the heart because they're the entrance to the heart. Once your heart is corrupted, then out of your heart can flow corrupt plans and out of your heart will flow corrupt paths or steps or directions and out of your heart will flow corrupt purposes. And then all those things bear false witness against the truth of God's word. And so when those things are corrupted to any degree, they lie against the truth of his God's word. And that's how you can end up partnering with the enemy and bear false witness. He said he hates that. And eventually you corrupt your purpose against the truth of his nature and character as a good and loving, holy, righteous God. So the result is this systematic corruption of his plan, his will, his intent, his purpose, and it manifests in division, discord, and strife. 
It becomes a consuming cancer that takes what was meant to bring health and healing and instead brings death and destruction. Cancer is your body doing what it's supposed to do, only it's gone haywire and it's now going to kill you. You realize that, right? That's how the enemy works. God must set his expectations against this from happening. He warns us. He makes it clear. That's why he says he hates it. So let's talk about the, the summation of that. I'm still kind of an in introductory here before we get to the eyes. Proverbs 16, 28. I made it to my first scripture. We ready to go with that? Yeah. They're like, he's going to comment on it before I show it. Okay. Proverbs 16, 28. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close Friends, 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, get this, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? What's the number six? The number of man. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God. What's the chief idea of Satan? To glorify us. Right? So are you... You're behaving only in a human way. So the six things God hates and the seven that are a total abomination to him are the way of humans apart from him. He doesn't hate our ways. He made us in his image and likeness. He loves our ways as long as our ways are in alignment with his ways. So the way of the flesh is contrary to the way of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12.20 for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. So let's follow that up with what Proverbs says about that. Proverbs seventeen fourteen: the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Let me stop right there. A couple very dear people to us have had water damage in their home. Not just one family, a couple. And that all started with one tiny drop. And nobody noticed it. A year and some, who knows how much, how many dollars of damage and renovations later, we're still trying to cover, recover, from that, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. You can't let it out. You can't let out one drop because behind that are 3,000 more and gallons. And it will, it will find its way. It will make a path and it will do destruction and damage. So he says, quit before the coral breaks out. Zip it. Zip it. Hush your mouth. And we're going to see that it all starts with the eyes. It's sequential. Haughty eyes are the beginning. That's what was at the beginning of the list. What you see, what you perceive, how you discern, how you interpret what you see. How many of you know husbands and wife often interpret things they see differently? Yeah? Yeah? So how you interpret what you see and how you see or esteem yourself, how you view yourself, that all determines what happens next. 
Are the eyes haughty? Or are the eyes being used for God's intended purpose? So the eyes are the first step to letting the water release from the dam, the beginning of the coral breaking out. Proverbs 17, 19. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. I read that and I was like, what in the world does it mean to make your door high? I had an idea, but I had to look up some commentary on that. But first notice that any transgression that is embraced or loved is equal to loving or inviting strife. Any sin in the smallest of way already is opening the door to strife. Because sin corrupts absolutely and your relationship with others will be broken and your relationship with the Father will be broken. So raising his door here is equal to opening your mouth. Opening your mouth. In a multitude of words, wisdom is lacking. Let my words be few. Okay, I know we're on the eyes, but there's a tie into the mouth. So other translations of Proverbs 17.10 indicate that you can parse it almost in a better way. I'm not sure why it ended up this way. In three phrases. And they're this. The urge to take things from others, like your (laughs) three-year-old. The urge to dispute and being a loud mouth. I love it. It's so simple. It's those three things that this is talking about. I love the Nature Channel. My daughter, I think, loves it even more than me. And, And how many of you know hippos are awesome? Hippos are one of my favorite creatures. They're just, they're cute, they're cuddly, they're fat, they're messy. I've never laughed so hard as I ever had before at a YouTube video of a hippo doing something very sixth grade humorish. I won't go there, but, but hippos, they're just, they're awesome. I was watching this documentary. Now, I thought this was wild. They followed a hippo from infancy, basically through adulthood until he died over a span of, I want to say 14 to 15 years. That's a dedicated team of, of nature videographers So did you know, I learned from this hippo, that when a young male hippo opens his mouth wide, you know how big their mouths get? Those those gnarly, rotten-looking teeth? They open their mouth wide. If they do that in the presence of the rest of the herd, and the dominant male sees it, that dude's in trouble. He just said, I'm taking you on. Bring it. I'm ready to take charge of this herd. Okay? And I don't know how they knew this, but they probably, they know a lot about hippos, but this young hippo wasn't trying to antagonize the, uh, the hippo commander. He was just opening his mouth and yawning. But it wasn't a good scene. So the open mouth is a sign of aggression. And it says, I challenge the leader for the dominance and control of the herd. We need to be careful when we open our mouths. Amen. You really need to be careful. Often, it's what I have to say is more important than what the word has to say. I love hearing my own voice so much I don't even realize I'm not representing God anymore. We need to get back to having a reverence for the holiness and the authority of God's word. Amen. God's word 
When we open our mouths, we need to be very careful. We need to make sure we're staying low. See that hippo? He was, t- <laughs> he was just happy-go-lucky. He was in the wrong place at the wrong, wrong time. I will tell you the end of the story is he eventually moved from, he got cast out of that herd. He moved from desert place to desert place, eventually came back, grew big and strong, and, and he got a herd of his own, and he lived to a ripe old age till, till the young hippo chased him out of town. But I love that story. Thank you, Lord. So we need to be open. We need to stay low. We need to be open and receptive to the loving guidance and correction of God's word. We need to busy ourselves with humble service in the kingdom and not get so bored and off track we let out a big yawn of boredom. Don't get bored. Don't get bored. It's not a good thing when, when, when your kids say they're bored. So how does boredom manifest in the body? It's usually in people that have been around a long time. We become experts and critics instead of servants and students. We're yawning. We're opening our mouths. We become experts and critics instead of servants and students. The things God created in us to use for his glory begin to slowly experience corruption as we seek more and more to advance our personal agendas to make sure our voices get heard, to make sure our perspective is known and our eyes start to become corrupt. That hardiness creeps in. James 3, 15 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. God hates one who brings lies. The wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Notice how there's several elements in this verse that are a restatement of the proverb that we're looking at. Corrupt heart, corrupt speech, lies against the truth. This is decreation. It's a decreation narrative. In fact, every single passage in God's word about strife is describing the end result of that proverb 6 passage, the things that God hates. And at some point, all these elements, when they're uh, compromised and corrupted, they will bring strife, confusion, disorder, chaos. First Corinthians fourteen thirty three. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As soon as people are confused, you know, we're missing God somehow. Our eyes are not seeing his vision for our lives. So here's the components that can become corrupted for God's divine purpose. I'm going to restate those. The eyes, the tongue, the hands, those lead to the corruption of the heart, which corrupts the feet and the direction. And now all of a sudden you have an entire false witness against the truth. And then all of a sudden you have a strife situation. So they all lead to the same place. Strife. The root word for strife is to strive. It's okay to, to want to achieve some things, but we can get into striving in our own power. And we can get to striving out in our will, and we can get to striving in a direction other than that of God's divine plan and purpose. But we don't want to do that. You don't want to get out ahead of God. I was just talking to Christine. I was like, how the Lord knows 
where we've needed to be, when we've needed to be there. And you can get to a place where you feel where the enemy starts, starts trying to influence you to, well, maybe, uh, maybe I need to, to run away from this, or maybe I need to get away from this environment because it's not blessing us or it's not healthy. God, look, God has you there for a purpose. Don't let go. He's ministering to people through you. And you need to receive from people around you in that situation. So when we start striving, we're too future-focused, we're too goal-focused, we're too our plans-focused, and we're not God's plan-focused. So God hates when the parts of the body are corrupted because in the end it bears false witness against his word. And when you bear false witness against his word, you are bearing false witness against God Almighty himself. So if our testimony is a lie, then we have no witness to the world who hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. Isn't that interesting? If our testimony is a lie, then we don't have a witness to those who need him. So listen, God hates all of this because he absolutely loves you. And that's the hard thing about his word, and it's the beautiful thing about his word. If he didn't love you and care for you, he wouldn't care that any of these things corrupt his plan for you. He hates these things because it denies his love for you and keeps you from him. He doesn't hate you. He hates the witness that you might be bearing. So don't get confused. He hates the results of the witness you are bearing. The false witness is the one who spreads strife. Who is the witness? Who are we bearing witness to when we have a false witness against the word of God? We're bearing witness with Satan, the father of lies. See, God's diametrically opposed to Satan. The blood of the lamb is supposed to be the word of our testimony. Our testimony is the blood of the lamb. The exaltation of self is the word of Satan's testimony. Why was he cast from heaven? He wanted to be lifted up. He wanted to be like God. He says, hey, let's spread the worship around. I can be worshiped too because I'm beautiful and I'm good and I deserve some praise and some honor. And so do all these other angels that aren't getting credit. God doesn't alone deserve the glory. Isn't God a glory hog? Why why does he deserve it all? See, Satan constantly feels sorry for himself. Do you realize that? The whole root of that is pity. I'm not satisfied with God, how God made me to be, and I want to be something else he's made to, me to be. That's why you should never have a pity party. I'm sure the best of us have all had them at times, but I want to encourage you. Did you know a pity party is false worship? If you didn't know that, you need to understand that. It's devaluing yourself in the eyes of God and elevating your predicament your situation, your issues. It's saying these things are big, they're worthy, they're worthy of worship, they're unique, they're worthy of attention as opposed to anyone else who's experienced the same ups and downs in life, the same issues God has come to show himself strong on your behalf, the same issues Jesus Christ faced when he walked the earth. Pity says, my deal is bigger than anyone else's. And although there are times when it feels like that is truth, it is a lie from the pit of hell, When we're inconsolable, we're saying God's word can't do what it says it can for us. 
God's word isn't big enough to perfect that which concerns you. And all the self-pity just hinders God from being who he needs to be. And all of it stems from a corruption of the parts of us that he's created for his glory. Corrupt eyes. Our corrupt eyes, when we can only see ourselves, they've darkened. Your eyes need to look at him. Your eyes were made to look at him. That's the purpose of your eyes. Hello, somebody. See, he can't agree with or partner with darkness, death, dying, evil, sin, corruption. God resists the proud and he resists the pity party. So don't have one and don't invite me because I'm not coming. I'll pray for you. I'll encourage you out of that. But don't have a pity party. Pastor Maureen and I won't be attending. James 4, 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Staying with me. We're talking about the eyes. We're talking about haughty eyes. We're talking about an elevation of self. Corruption of divine purpose. 1 Peter 5, 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Same thing, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we wrongly esteem ourselves and wrongly esteem the word of God, we run smack dab into the wall of resistance. How many of you have hit a wall before? Look, why aren't things changing? What is not happening? Yes, literally, with your car, I know. No joke intended. It's all about who and what we elevate. It's all about who and what we elevate. Is the Lord elevated? Is his promise elevated? Is his word elevated? Is his truth elevated? Is his ability elevated? Or are we elevated? See, humble means to, lay, to make low. It's a posture of recept, receptivity. So let's, with the remainder of the time, uh, let's start to dig into eyes. I'll probably teach more on eyes next time. But that laid a good groundwork, good introductory material for where this is going. I'll review some of that and probably add different things to it because God is giving me more and more about this the more I study it. So eyes, just reviewing what it said there. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, number one. If haughty eyes are a corruption of God's divine purpose, what is his purpose for our eyes? Haughty eyes seek approval from men. They are high self-focused. They're low others-focused. They're disdainful and arrogant. Instead of being self-focused, watching to see if others look at us and esteem us, we need to respond to God's word when he says, look. When God says, behold, Behold is used in Scripture 1,298 times. He says, look, use your eyes. I want to use your eyes for a purpose. Behold. Behold. It's derived from the Greek word edo, which has the literal translation of be sure and see this. Don't miss this. It also has the idea of seeing to intuit. In other words, look and have an intuitive seeing and knowing about the things that I'm asking you to look at. You follow me? Look and discern, look and know. Not just look to describe. Look to discern, look to know. His people perish for lack of vision. 
And vision is vital for divine purpose. And vision always comes from the word of God. Proverbs 20, 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. God made your eyes. The Lord created our eyes. He doesn't hate our eyes. He hates the corruption of his purpose for our eyes. Matthew 6, 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Listen, our eyes have the potential to clearly see the light and glory of God. Our eyes have the potential to sparkle with the light of eternity, the hope of Jesus Christ. Our eyes are the guardians, the gateways of his light. There are also possible entrances of the place of darkness. Don't you love when you look at someone's eyes and they just sparkle? There's just light there. There's an inner radiance. There's an inner beauty. See, in the natural, when it gets dark, what happens? Your pupil dilates, says, let more light in. I want to see the light. When we're filled with light, we can recognize the light in others. We can see clearly to minister light to a dark world. You can't give what you don't have if you don't let the light in. You can't let the light out. Have you noticed the eyes of someone who's severely oppressed? Has anyone seen someone who's demon-possessed? The eyes, there's no light whatsoever. It is utter darkness. Have you ever been, some, been around someone on their deathbed, especially someone who doesn't know the Lord? It is utterly dark. I've seen it. I've stared right into it. I don't know if you know, uh, if you watch the animated movies, whenever they want a character to suddenly look dark or evil, the whole eye gets black. Uh, Finding Nemo, the shark, when he gets a little taste of the blood, he's all happy. He's a shark, you know, Fish Eaters Anonymous. Then all of a sudden, uh, Dory pricks her hand or something, and that little drop of blood goes in the shark's eyes, instantly black. He's now after one thing, blood. See, it's darkness in your eye. That speck in your eye is blocking the light. You know that. So why God says, hey, take, take it out. Take out that speck. The self-righteous attitude, the high and mighty feeling has darkened your vision and it's a hindrance to the light and life of God's divine purpose through you. I happen to notice things. I'm a noticer. I notice things when others don't notice things. And I, and I notice when you don't notice. And it bothers me as a noticer. <laughs> And I'm not talking about a critical spirit or seeing negative. I just, I just see things. I see detail. Someone can walk right by something and have no idea it's there, and I'll, and I'll know it's there. It's just, it's something I see. And there's people who see things, and they see excellence, and they notice they have an eye for excellence. And if you ever watch that person, they will make sure that excellence is there because they're looking for it. They want to make sure things appear excellent, excellently. Many people will walk right by it and not even notice it. You never know how dirty the baseboards in your house are until you go to someone else's house and look at their baseboards. Fresh eyes. Same issue. You've gotten used to yours. Theirs, you're not so used to. You notice it. 
But see, our eyes were created to see the goodness of God in all creation. Did you know that? Psalm 34, 8. Are you still with me? Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I love that that seeing is a part of tasting. When we develop a taste for the word of God, it's like eating food at a fine restaurant. My food has to look a certain way. I put it on the plate so that it's appealing. You know, you eat with your eyes. Presentation matters. His word looks beautiful to us. And when we see the beauty in his word, we will want more of it. We'll want to consume more of it. We'll want to eat more of it. We'll want to share it with the world. And then on the contrary, have you ever noticed someone that all they see is what isn't right? That's all they can see. All they do is point out the flaws. You you never hear one positive thing. That's a different eye problem. That is actually a lack of light flowing. It's not, oh, I have a critical eye. It's they have an eye for criticism and there's a difference. See, it's one thing to discern evil. Yes, you should. You should have a spiritual revelation and a need for, for, for light. But if you see something and you can't see a solution, you're not seeing light. You're only seeing darkness. All you see is problems. And so letting the light of the Lord illuminate us is always going to show us a solution, show us a potential redemptive path. Leaders that rise to the top have the light and revelation of how God's word can make this work and how there can be a solution. See, an eye that sees the goodness of God sees and says, how might we? Not, eh, this is a mess. Let me just lay the problem out before you. Someone who sees the light, the way forward says, how might we do this? There's a way. Let's look for that. Psalm 63, 2. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Did you know our eyes were made to see God in his holy place? Our eyes were made to see the glory of God, to see him as he tabernacles, not only in our individual hearts, but to see him as he tabernacles. You know what that means? Dwells with you, builds a tent, spends time among his people in the corporate assembly here. When you see him, you see the potential for his power and glory. I see glory in you. I see glory on you. I see glory in this place. I don't need to literally see an angel fly in the balcony. I see the glory of God in you. I see the light of God in you. I see the potential for his power and glory to be made manifest. If you have infirmity, I see the potential for the light of his healing power to come. When you don't see him, when you don't see his glory, you see people as irritating and annoying. When people start to bother you, check out your eyesight. What are you looking for? You start to see people as promises, not as promises. Uh, you start to see people as problems, not as promises. Excuse me. People aren't your problem. They're just God's promise waiting to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. We need to see his power and glory. And when we do that, he will more and more in a greater dimension make his sanctuary among us. 
He will truly come and fulfill the vision that you have, the vision that you have for him. If you see him, he will want to be where you see him. If not, he has no interest in being there. Our eyes are too haughty, and then he will resist us. Okay, there's a lot more here on eyes, but what I want to do, because we're at the end of the time for tonight. I knew there was a lot here, but I, I think it's worth diving into every part of this. How many of you got something out of it so far? Good. We're going to keep digging. I need to stop there, but what I want to do is what we've heard so far, what we've, we've, we've mined from God's word so far, I just want to pray over us as, as we start to look through these things. Would you allow me to do that? Would you agree with me in prayer? Would, could we just unite our hearts in prayer tonight? Lord, help us recover your heart and your desire to be co-creators with us. Forgive us if we've forgotten that. If we'd have allowed decreation to take place, we don't need to allow that. We need to resist that. Lord, we need a fresh revelation of our role in living as redemptive kingdom expanding partners with your anointed one, Jesus. Wake us up, Lord. The enemy wants to subtly corrupt every part of us that you've designed for your divine purpose and for your glory. Help us to recognize the enemy's plan for decreation so we can resist him. Help us to see clearly with the eyes of the Spirit the full truth and scope of your word for our lives. Lord, let not hardiness be found in us, nor in any believer in our midst who calls grace and peace home. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Tonight, I, James Wheeler, rededicate my eyes for your purposes and for your glory. I rededicate my tongue to you right now. We do that together. We rededicate our hands to you right now. We rededicate our feet to you right now. We recommit to be true and a reliable witness of your word. We want to experience unity in the body. We want to be one with you as you and the Father are one. Lord, I pray you continue to anoint this series, continue to bring light at the entrance of your word brings light as I study, as I meditate upon, and as I teach the people. Thank you, Lord, for being gracious, loving, patient. Thank you for continually walking with us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I thank you that you are perfecting that which concerns us in this body. I pray, Lord, that the seed of the word of God goes deep down into the hearts of those listening here tonight. Forgive us for having itching ears, Lord. Bring us back to the place of rich, deep impartation and receptivity to the eternal truth of the word of God. I pray over everyone watching right now that this word would transform their hearts, their lives, that it would go on through eternity. I pray over everyone who listens on the podcast. As you showed us earlier, not one word is ever wasted. When your word goes forth, it will perform what you sent it to whether we see it now or next week or next year or in the next decade or in the next thousand years, Lord. I thank you for it. I thank you for each heart gathered here tonight. I thank you that they've taken time out to be here, to worship, to hear your word. 
Now I pray, Lord, that we are able to go out and apply this truth and show us, Lord. I pray that you start showing people things and their mind is blown by the wonder of who you are, that their eyes have been opened like for the first time to see the depth and the riches of your glory. Thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.